Welcome back to In the Queue, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. I'm your co-host, Phil, and I think sometimes that there should be a best editing category at the Oscars for documentaries. Oh, just specifically for documentaries and nothing else? Like, or do you think that more documentaries should be lopped, lumped into the best editing category? Uh, well, I mean, if you were to lump, like, Hearts and Minds in with, like, uh, you know, Star Wars or something like that for editing, seems like it might be a little bit sort of mismatched. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're sort of different animals. That's fair. That's fair. So maybe, yeah, maybe like a whole other category just for editing a documentary. Fair enough. You know what? I, Probably, I'm yeah. going to interrupt you, actually, because I'm really hot on this topic right now. Yeah, I, I can tell. <laughs> I think maybe such a category does exist at certain documentary awards-granting uh, well, institutions. Sure, You know, yeah. like the IDA or something. Maybe they give a best editing for a documentary category. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Now, well, with the sheer, you know, number of documentaries that are made these days, that you know, there might be something to that. Yeah. Might be something to it. I am your other co-host, Andrew, and every now and again you come across a film that kind of shocks you with how seminal it is. And uh and this today's film is one of those films. Indeed. We're talking about the classic Oscar-winning documentary Hearts and Minds from 1975. Yep. And yep. before we get to the discussion about this film, which is a special discussion, uh, I want to tell you all where you can find us on the internet. You can go to our blog at www.in-the-q, that's the letter Q, dot com. On our blog, you can find all of our posts, all of our shows. You can leave comments, and you can leave listener requests for us to honor later on. Oh, yeah. You can do some of those same things on our Facebook page. Just go to Facebook and search for In the Queue, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil, and we will show up there. The Facebook page is unique because not only can you leave comments and listener requests and listen to our shows, but also we post videos and other things that sort of comment on the discussion that we happen to be having that week for that particular film. And it's kind of a rollicking good time, if I do say so myself. Indeed it is. Indubitably. Indubitably. Last, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Just go to iTunes like you normally do. Oh, yeah. And search for In the Queue. Q-U-E-U-E is the way you spell it. And just subscribe to our podcast. All of our shows are posted there, dating back to a year ago or a year or so ago when we first started doing this podcast. Almost a year and a half now. Just wow, time flies. It does. Yeah, if I could put time in a bottle, you know. Thank you, Jim Croce. <laughs> You're welcome. And uh, <laughs> we we post all of our new shows rapidly on iTunes as soon as they're recorded. So, yeah, you'll never miss an episode this way. We highly recommend it. Indeed. In- now, before we get to the movie itself today, I wanted to mention something to our loyal listeners. Because uh, you'll notice that this week and for several weeks following, we are not doing new releases. Mm. Uh, there is a very good reason for that, and it's not because we are protesting the summer movie season. No. Uh, quite the contrary, in fact. Uh, there's The new Mad Max movie is something that I want to see more than almost anything else in the world. <laughs> However, uh, I am laying up 
uh, following a surgical procedure and I'm not able to leave the house or sit in a movie theater mm. for an extended period of time, which means that we're going to be doing a number of films mm-hmm. from the Criterion Collection yeah. in place of those new releases. We're both huge enthusiasts of the Criterion Collection, have been for decades now. <laughs> as long as it's been around i think just about well the laser discs we weren't really you know i don't think either of us uh were as hip to those as we were but once they hit dvd i think it was uh non-stop uh love i'm trying to think how did i first find out about them and i don't know i, I remember the first dvd of theirs that i ever bought it was andre rublev oh because, yeah because uh my film professor gary hawkins who was on this show um, he was talking about Rublev in class, and I, I actually bought it, and I thought that I would impress him by letting him borrow it, <laughs> and that he would he would like me and take me under his wing. Uh, yeah. But uh, he borrowed it and then gave it back, and the whole wing thing didn't happen. Um, Alas. But we became friends later, much later, actually, when we found ourselves in the same town about, yeah. boy, 15 years after that class. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well... Uh, I can't remember what the first one I bought was. Probably The Killer. Actually, I know it was The Killer because it was before I had a DVD mm-hmm. player and my friend didn't really love it. Like, he didn't hear The Killer and Hard Boiled, I think. Yeah. He sold them both to me and I just hung on to them until I had a DVD player. Uh, which I really wish more than anything that the Criterion Collection would go back and redo those two films. Yeah. And then the rest of John Woo's Chinese catalog yeah. because... Oh, they're amazing. Anyway. I guess there's all kinds of licensing issues that are preventing that from happening. Yeah, I would imagine, sadly. They're out of print. They're hot hot items to buy off eBay, I would think. Um, Okay, well, so we're talking about hearts and minds today, and we... I wouldn't say that there's any kind of particular rhyme or reason to these movies that we're going to talk about. We just kind of felt like talking about them, and we both had access to them. Um, Hearts and Minds, as I said, it won an Oscar in 1976 for um, Best Documentary Feature. And it was completed right on the sort of the end of the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War around 1974. Yep. Yep. And it is a epic sort of um, summary of the conflict in, in very comprehensive terms. Um, yeah. It dates back. the The footage dates back to you know the the well way back even before the the official conflict or the the sort of the the, the most people tend to think of Vietnam as starting in the mid '60s, but it dates back to the 1950s. And there's even footage of of uh, Ho Chi Minh back from that time period um, when the um, the the war in Indochina, as it was called, was sort of just sort of starting. Um, and the filmmaker Peter Davis and his cameraman, uh, I believe his name is Richard Pierce, they, remarkably, it's one cameraman for the whole frickin' film. And it takes you to Vietnam, back to the U.S., back and forth. And interestingly, what's unique about Hearts and Minds, and I think integral to its success as a film, is there's no narration, yeah. as you would find in a historical film about Vietnam, which was, there's so many of those out there. Um, Hearts and Minds is not a summary of the conflict. It's not like a tactical summary of of how the actual strategy for the war went down. It's basically a kind of capturing the the human 
aspect of the war, uh, both on the side of the South Vietnamese and also on the U.S. side, and the the, ca- the yeah. casualties that people endure and the hardships. And now there's something really, really interesting about Hearts and Minds, and that is you might think that because there's no narration, the film kind of exists to let you make up your own mind about what we see. Um, but the thing is, this film actually, because it's so smartly edited, it takes you from location to location, and you're leaping from a from like a farm home in Nebraska to Saigon to mm-hmm. New Jersey to blah blah blah, and like it's kind of like every sort of different edit brings you to a new scene in a new location, and it's almost like a it makes the Vietnam War seem totally ubiquitous, like it's. Vietnam is about everything. It's about everyone. It's about the whole country. And it, it's it's so overreaching. But Hearts and Minds is sly in the sense that while it, it it's almost propaganda at times. And and I really I really admire this film. But this film, while it does not use narration, it uses visuals to make its point. And sometimes uses music to make its point. And sometimes it uses like parallel editing uh motifs. Where there, where you're drawing comparisons between two different things to make its point, and I think that this style is something that you you see a lot of Michael Moore's films, and Michael Moore even said that he thought that Hearts and Minds was the greatest film ever made. Yeah, yeah. So what you're saying is you you feel like it it treads more into the territory of kind of an op ed than it does just a strict documenting of events that happen. I think the the title of the film is a dual meaning. It refers to LBJ's effort to win the hearts and minds in South Vietnam so that they can win the frickin' war, but then it also it has to do with, you know, we're trying to win the hearts and minds of the, the viewers of this film, because it, it is a truly an anti-war film, but it's presented in a yeah. way that almost seems, on the surface, seems more balanced. Oh, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, to some extent, I could see that. I, I don't necessarily think that... I think it, it has, from the get-go, a very distinct point of view. Uh-huh. And I think it's easy to see what that point of view is. And you're right, it is an anti-war point of view and something that is rather clear early on. I mean, I think that this film grew out of the zeitgeist, right? It grew out of the feeling of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it is so close to the actual conflict itself. Um, just in terms of, you know, how far removed it is in time from the conflict, which is hardly at all. Right. Um, but I, I don't know that... I mean, I don't think it makes any pretense that it is trying to document something that... You know, it, it's not trying to present the material as uh, as though it is without an agenda. You, you're saying it's not trying to be objective? I don't think so, no. I think it's trying to be very subjective. I mean, just the very fact, one of the things that fascinated me about this film was the uh, South Vietnamese perspective, mm-hmm. which I, I frankly didn't expect to see for whatever reason when I watched this film. I didn't expect to see actual interviews with South, South Vietnamese uh, soldiers and generals and, you know, yeah. people. Um. I, I just expected it to be about the American experience vis-a-vis the Vietnam War. And I think that, you know, 
by virtue of, of simply doing that, mm-hmm. you are uh, making a, a statement by by extending that uh, hand. You're saying that I care about the people. In fact, I think that that's the the most incredibly uh, endearing thing about this film mm-hmm. is that it is so concerned with people. It's really a, only about people. It's about the people involved in this and how it affected their lives and how it continues to affect, affect their lives. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, yes, but then you've also got the the war hero from Linden, New Jersey, who was yeah. a POW yeah. for seven years. And, you know, we, we, we have a, an objective view of him as... You know, hail the conquering hero. He comes home. He's he's treated to a celebration and a parade with like thousands of people, and he speaks. And this this moment, this scene in the film, and we see the same soldier subsequently throughout the film. Yep. This could be seen as you know, rah rah, you know, go America. You know, um, I think it's. I, I don't think know. it's meant to necessarily though, because I even even those scenes with that soldier, and maybe this is me sort of writing over it through the lens of history and my knowledge of the Vietnam War and kind of, you know, the fact that, you know, I'm seeing this movie in 2015, not 1975, Mm -hmm. 40 years removed from the actual release of the film. Yeah. Uh, I, I viewed those as almost like sort of elegiac or, or kind of sad in a way. I, not necessarily, Saying like, oh look at this poor person, but oh look at this poor machine that we've built, mm-hmm. right? That turns people into sort of parrots for the administration. Interesting, right? That's that's kind of how I viewed those scenes, and maybe again, maybe that's through my own personal lens, but I did not view them as especially uh, uh, go go America kind of scenes. Um, so, do you feel that pretty much through and through this this film is like? I mean, I I, I I sort of sense this. I get the impression from this film too, but I just want to check and see with you. Do you feel like the yeah. whole film has that kind of overtly liberal bias or you know or slant? I don't. I don't. I wouldn't necessarily call it overtly liberal. I mean, if well, I mean, if if being anti-war is liberal, then I guess maybe yes. I think that's what I was going uh, for. Yeah. I you know it's you know words take on meanings, and I feel like liberal is thrown around in such a uh, sort of pejorative context uh-huh. these days, you know, it's it's just hard to 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 say that. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Anyway, that that, that being said, um, yeah, I I I you know, I can't say that completely truthfully because there are points of this film that I I was thinking to myself, oh, this is even-handed, this is interesting, because they did interview some administration officials, they interviewed uh, people who were making decisions, but you know, I don't know, because even those people they usually tended to be presented as making wrong-headed decisions, right? Right, like the uh, the aide to Kennedy Yeah, uh, yeah. Walter Rostow, I think was his name. Yeah. Where he's like, <laughs> it happens really early in the film where he's interviewed and, and he's talking about you know about the, the the communist forces in Vietnam and how you know the South Vietnam was was battling them, and then then Peter Davis, his voice off screen inter, <laughs> yeah. interjects like, well, what what do they need us for? 
and then uh, and then Rosto like he keeps talking and talking, and then almost like, like a delayed reaction. Then he gets annoyed after he realizes what what Davis has said about thirty seconds ago, and then he's yeah. like, "Peter, do you really want me to answer that moronic question? Get into that." Yeah. And then he gets really condescending, and he starts to to explain and educate us where how the Vietnam conflict started. And interestingly, he starts it way back in nineteen fifty seven when Sputnik was launched. Yeah. And and and, and that was sort of like a. Um, a great watershed moment for the Soviets, and it, it gave them more power, and their power could started to reach further away from the Soviet Union into Vietnam. Um, yeah. But but yes, I mean he does. Peter Davis does interview the uh, the generals, and they all come across looking like monsters. He interviews <laughs> he interviews George S. Patton, who who caps his his little you know soundbite by saying. His boys are a bloody great group of killers, and then smiles really big, <laughs> and his teeth look like you know shingles or 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 maybe more like Conrad Pooh's dancing teeth without the dancing. <laughs> right, right. And then, but what I was alluding to in the beginning about the uh, the sly sort of propaganda nature of the film is happens close to the end where they intercut General Westmoreland talking mm-hmm. about. The uh, how the Vietnamese don't care about their dead and they're just savages and they're backwards people and they deserve to be exterminated basically is the subtext and and yep. they intercut those interview segments with shots of you know bereaved South Vietnamese burying yeah. their loved ones yeah yeah grieving in the same way that we do yeah and and it's it's a direct contrast to what we what we're hearing from the the general who just doesn't care. That's the impression that we get. And so, well, but, but I don't know that that's, again, I think that that's, it's, it is, it has an anti-war message appropriately, I think, because Vietnam was probably the most divisive conflict in this country's history. And I I think that it's anti-war message is just reinforced throughout the film by all of these things that we've been talking about. I think that it's, um, so yeah, if, if, if you, I don't, I don't, I just wouldn't call that propaganda. I guess is the difference between you and well, I. Well, okay, I agree. Propaganda is a loaded word, just like liberal is. <laughs> um, and I oh, say, semantics, semantics. And I say, I say propaganda while being a little bit provocative, because, yeah. because you know, I want to have a nice provocative discussion with you. Of course, uh, of course. <laughs> but but it, okay, say we don't use the word propaganda because when you think of propaganda, you tend to think of triumph of the will or something like that. But when I say yeah. propaganda, what I'm really sort of saying is maybe persuasion, persuasive filmmaking, um, and that yeah. that is almost like helping you make the decision for you about how you should feel about something. Like, well, that brings up an inter- interesting question, then, and this is something that I think I've always found very fascinating. You mentioned Michael Moore and how much Michael Moore reveres this film, mm-hmm. and of course, Michael Moore, as we know, is a very divisive filmmaker. Yes, and uh, I, I find it interesting that uh, starting, I think, with Bowling for Columbine, although it probably goes all the way back to Roger and me, mm-hmm. but starting with Bowling for Columbine, I remember being cognizant of the fact that people were criticizing. Michael Moore by saying these aren't documentaries because they present a very very clear point of view mm-hmm. and I always thought that that was a completely disingenuous statement to to be making 
um, you know, people would would criticize and they'd say he needs to present both sides of the story. There, he has he doesn't have to do any such thing. Yeah, he has no responsibility to present anything but the thesis that he is putting forth. And it, and just because it happens to be a very loaded thesis doesn't meet, make it any less of a documentary. Yeah, well, you know, Michael Moore is the author of his films, and if yeah. you look back at you, know, you ask the question, well, who's objective? Who's an objective documentary filmmaker? And such a thing does not quite exist. Um, you've got filmmakers who sort of purport to be more objective, like Frederick Wiseman, for example, who just... Maisels. Maisels, they just let the camera run. They let it run, and they just capture whatever is on screen, and then they edit together something that's interesting. Um, but but, but this, the mere fact of, of editing... Anything you're you're altering, it's the meaning of the footage, and, yeah. and it's it, it's the basic building blocks of the cinema. Whether it's a documentary or if it's a narrative film, you know it's you cannot help but manipulate quote unquote the facts. And then you've got somebody like Werner Herzog who makes a distinction between the facts in a documentary and yep. the truth in a documentary. Uh, yes. That's a whole other thorny discussion to have. <laughs> it is, but, it is. But, yeah, it's like, well, it's, I, Andrew, I think maybe some people get annoyed with Bowling for Columbine because, you know, gun violence is such a hot-button issue that affects everybody. They feel like some people think that there should be an, uh, a more balanced sort of address of the issue. Yeah, so they can go out and make a movie that is a counterpoint to Michael Moore's film. Not everybody is as skilled a filmmaker as Michael Moore is. <laughs> well, then they need to find their champion, get their avatar to go out there and make that film. Yeah, just or just turn on Fox News, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, but yeah, so Andrew and I were talking about this film earlier, and he mm-hmm. said that this film is kind of like a, the template for all documentaries that have come since. Yeah. And this is a very influential film, and Criterion, of course, released it, and they recently re-released it on Blu-ray, which means that it's got more visibility. Um, the copy that I have is from way back when, when it wasn't remastered and released. Yeah, uh, the new one. Yeah, the new one. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so this film is in people's hearts and minds, and <laughs> <laughs> so it's yeah, and it. It doesn't use narration, like as I said, and I feel like narration has become kind of a, a no-no in documentaries of these days. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like it's not very hip to use narration. They just use title cards. Yeah, that's it's true. Narration is less and less frequent, although I would say probably not overall, because if you look at all of the shows that are on Discovery Channel or Animal Planet or whatever, mm-hmm. and you consider those to be documentary films in one way or another... Yeah. Um, those tend to use narration heavily, very heavily. Yeah, I mean, some some um, people might draw a distinction between like a nature or an educational documentary and what what a lot of people call nonfiction filmmaking these days. Yeah, yeah, but even but even things like I just recently watched Inequality for All, the Robert Reich uh, documentary, mm-hmm. and that had heavy narration because it was trying to explain very complicated concepts, right, about the economy and about sort of how we found ourselves where we found ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you're right, though. Overall, people rely on that less and less. But when I say that, I, I think that this film is is a template for everything that's come 
after it was because you know this is sort of what I alluded to in my introduction. I was shocked <laughs> at how real and present and sort of modern this film felt. I mean, I know it's just the seventies; it's not that long ago, but even so, I was I was surprised by how how incredibly now it felt. Uh huh. And I think that that I, I translate that into being well. The reason for that is that this film laid the groundwork for what we think of as documentary nowadays. The editing style, the interview style, mm-hmm. the uh, juxtaposition of you know images with the overlay of the audio from an interview that you're listening to. Yeah, all of those kinds of things. You know, like you're watching bombs drop, but you're hearing somebody talk about. Uh-huh. The the war in very you know blase terms you know whatever the 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 case is so that juxtaposition of imagery vis a vis audio or imagery against other imagery as you mentioned uh, uh, earlier the the whole thing uh, talking about the the Vietnamese being animals and yet we're watching them uh-huh. grieve for their dead in the same way that we do yeah like all of these things are are things that you see in in all of the best documentaries. <laughs> yeah, and also there's this this notion that you see, I'll keep harping on Michael Moore because I keep seeing these similarities. Uh, early yeah. in the film, the uh, one of the officials from the Truman administration, I believe, is talking about how after World War II, the U.S. was on top. We were yeah. uh, the superpower, and, and there was this p- potential for us to do anything. And then it cuts to a clip from some, like, promotional World War II film where like all these US troops are marching and and singing and it it looks more like propaganda I mean uh yeah. you know definitely you a pro US you know sentiment anyway and um and that particular idea where you pull archival footage from a different source Maybe yep. a narrative film, even. You pull this footage, and then you bring it into your film, and then you use this as commentary on, on what you're talking about. So this, this very patriotic scene of these you know, soldiers marching and singing, um, you know, in a way, this actually might... It might skew either direction. It might it might skew as like, oh, right. this is right. this is our triumph after World War II. We are on top. Yeah, over there, over there. Or then it might seem like, oh, we're so arrogant and you know, and we think that we can run the world and we're so full of ourselves and we don't realize the great fall that's going to happen to us in Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But but either way, either way you skew it, this is a technique that I see everywhere. You know, documentary filmmakers. Everywhere. Yeah. Documentary filmmakers pull. They get the rights either through fair use or they actually pay for it. They get these clips from from existing sources and they incorporate it into their own film as to give you a different sort of education as to the messages they're trying to convey. Yeah. And that's one technique that I definitely noticed by watching this one. Yeah, and and it's really fascinating. I mean, I I if, if you can't tell by now, I I think this film is great and I think it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I would recommend it to anybody based solely on the fact that it is it is so alive mm-hmm. as a documentary. It feels so just full of life. Like, uh, it feels very kinetic. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is one of those, you know, just this past year, 
for at the Oscars, there was a movie nominated for uh, best documentary called Last Days in Vietnam. Right. And Last Days in Vietnam was about the the evacuation of the Americans and a good portion of the South Vietnamese out of Saigon as the North Vietnamese were sort of marching on the city. And, uh, and it's a fascinating documentary. Uh, but it was kind of, it was interesting to watch this in, in a, in fairly close proximity to, to having watched that film mm-hmm. because they, they were almost, it was almost more exciting to watch this than it was to watch this, you know, brand new documentary yeah. that uh, has, you know, as I said, 40 years of, of development of the art form to, to work with, but hearts and minds somehow felt more immediate than this film that just came out. Even though, the, even though I also think that last days in Vietnam is a great documentary. It's really excellent. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, th- this movie is that good and it's that interesting and it's that fascinating. It has a lot of ground to cover and yeah. it, it covers it very thoroughly and, and quickly, so swiftly, it moves and and efficiently, incredibly efficiently. Yeah, it's it's extremely well done. I also am a big fan of this film. Um, I don't normally buy political documentaries, but I bought this one, and I just think it's it sort of transcends politics. Really, it's more about humanity and and um, the, the larger issue of of war itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really, really great film. It's on the Criterion Collection, as we said. Uh, go out and pick it up or rent it. Um, there's a ton of bonus features that I haven't gotten a chance to watch yet, but <laughs> hopefully will sometime soon. It's got director's commentary. and a, I know. A nice, I'm very curious to hear that. A nice big thick booklet to go inside also. Yep. Yep. Um, so that's our show about Hearts and Minds. We hope you enjoyed it. I actually really like talking about Criterion films. Um, Me too. I'm looking forward to this next several weeks. And here's to Andrew... Going on the mend quickly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, our next episode, though, is going to be a, a listener request. We're going to talk about this movie called Barbarian Sound Studio. Oh, yeah. Which I haven't seen, but I've seen another film by the same director, and it was weird, and I liked it. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, prepare yourself, buddy. <laughs> okay. All right. So our, our, uh, we're going to have a new listener, actually, named Paige, who's going to call in the show, and we'll have a nice discussion. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it. Cool. So join us then. We'll see you then.